Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I've led sales at four companies, twice as CEO, twice as head of sales, and always with a love for the job and a fondness for fun stories. Currently, I lead sales at self-driving delivery car company Udell. I love startup history, scrappy sales and stories, and I'm excited to learn them and share them with you. On this episode, we've got Doug Landis, a little bio here about Doug. As growth partner at Emergence Capital, his charter is to create a platform to share go-to-market insights and strategies that will help portfolio companies scale, grow, and ultimately become the next billion-dollar SaaS company. Prior to joining Emergence, Doug spent 12-plus years driving sales productivity and efficiency inside the world's top technology companies like Box, Salesforce, and Google. Ever heard of them? Before joining Emergence, Doug held the coveted title of Chief Storyteller and VP of Sales Productivity and Enablement at Box, a provider of content collaboration software with 1,700 employees and annual revenue run rates of $600 million. As the chief storyteller, he was responsible for helping to change the way that Box talked to and about their customers. Doug brings a wealth of experience in driving sales efficiency and excellence through the use of data and customer insights to help transform the way sales organizations scale, develop, and engage with prospects and customers. Building and accelerating the growth of a sales organization requires intention, execution, and the right people. And over the last 15 years, Doug has built a repeatable process and framework that is utilized in SaaS companies around the world. So with that context, I want to warn you here, we sort of just got started and the conversation just was so good and natural that we kept going without a real formal intro or beginning. So we'll start off here with Doug asking the questions and me giving some answers. Uh, Whether you want it or not, you'll get a taste of my thoughts on Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, and why I think selling self-driving cars is kind of like selling copy machines. Well, when we swap spots and I get to start asking the questions, we jump into stories about why Box turned down a $1 million deal as a young company, the advantages of reading articles over books, and how to make requests of your clients and prospects to make it a two-sided relationship. Our conversation was pure fun, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Doug Landis. How did we connect and how did I like you mean, remind me some context of all this? Uh, I love that I tricked you into this, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, the context is pretty simple. So uh, I lead sales for a self driving car company. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. I think it's really, really challenging. And I've done sales at startups a few times before as a CEO or as a head of sales. And basically, like finding all these cool patterns, doing this for the very, very first time, like the zero to 100 kind of status. <laughs> Zero to um, ten first. Yes, zero, zero, zero to one. Is, I'm <laughs> yeah. feeling good. Zero to one. And then, <laughs> in the Bay Area, is, in my mind, actually, is significantly easier than if you're somewhere else. But zero to ten, it's one to ten, it starts to get really hard. Absolutely. So in that context, um, so I'm doing this and it's really fun. I'm like, you know what? Selling self-driving cars is so interesting because it's a, in my mind, an un- unescapable future. Like it's absolutely no doubt in my mind that self-driving cars are a thing. Whether it's this year, next year, five years from now, ten years from now, I'm not really sure, and you know, right. everyone can take their gander. Right. But selling that is probably a lot like it was to sell fax machines in the '60s, <laughs> or, or like or copiers when they first came or out. Or copiers right? when they first came out. Like, who you go into an office and convince, like, hey, I've got this thing, and you're gonna zap paperwork across the world. Like, nobody believes you. Right, right. So I'm like, oh wow, what an interesting analogy. Yeah. yeah. Let's go see what other people have to say about it. Um, although, arguably, you could say, what is it? Western Digital really kind of set the stage for all of that because uh, the the fact that you could send money. Yeah. Right. And and way back in the early days, Union had is, to convince, West, Western, Western Union, Union they had yeah, to convince totally. their own people anyway, or people anyway, of, yeah, of yeah. how to do that. Western Union is like one of the oldest. It is one of the oldest uh, companies. And one of the, kind of the original, we'll call it, tech companies ever in the history of the United States. Yeah. What, what are they still doing? Sending money. <laughs> they are. They're, They're like totally still around. Years old. You see yeah. them in like little uh, little communities here, yeah. and there, internationally, yeah. and they're everywhere. Well, that's their big market. It's yeah. all international. It's all just exactly money. I thought people still took that. Like that's how PayPal. That was PayPal's first thing. 
um, was, was no, PayPal was more focused domestically on like, hey, sending money to your friends or sending money to, to businesses. Western Union is like the 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 international. The they own the international markets. Right. You know, because how just think about how many like like refugees or um, kind of first generation folks come to the United States and they send money back to their families. Yeah. How do they do it? And repetitively, over and over and over. Over and over and over again. Uh, PayPal, actually, I was just rereading Zero to One, uh, Peter Thiel's book, and PayPal started, they said, like, hey, we want some transaction that happens often, that's really hard right now. So they actually started with the moving money internationally, but they realized it was too infrequent. Yes. Somebody sends money every three months. Right, 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 totally. Something like that. So then they pivoted to the whole eBay thing, because it's more frequent, higher need, things like that. They started there, couldn't quite... Make the business work there, and then standard, standard early stage company. Absolutely. So I just thought, <laughs> get ready to pivot. And and rereading that book has actually gotten me to to want to reread. I very 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 rarely reread books, but right, rereading totally. that one has been so so interesting. Like you know, it's been a couple of years. I, I yeah, yeah. learned a couple more things. What so. yeah? Would you pick up this time around that you didn't maybe see the first he's, time around? Uh, he's got this section about sales, um, specifically about how many. The part of the section is like every technical founder wants a product that can sell itself. Uh, that doesn't really exist. I was just listening to a podcast on the way over here with a head of sales for Sherman Williams, the paint company, and he goes, my whole career I've been looking for a can of paint that can talk. <laughs> and so Peter Thiel went down that whole sideline about like what sales does, how it's important, how to treat it right, how to treat it wrong, where it's valuable, uh, how to think about first hires, things like that. So just rereading that has been interesting, I guess, in the context of... Given the fact that that book is now, what, five years old? Five, six years old? Yeah. Um, what do you think is still relevant versus what's not maybe as relevant? Because in five, six years, look, in the world of sales, so much of it is the yeah. same as what it was 100 years ago when they were selling snakeskin oil. Yeah. Um, the Chinese were uh, uh, to the gypsies. <laughs> um, but, but there are nuances that evolve, right? Every shit you could argue every year or so now, especially with technology. Yeah. So from that point of view, five, six years ago, to today, what do you think is it might be different or missing? Interesting question. I think the part that remains accurate is him getting younger folks like myself to think a little bigger, right? Is think a little broader. Don't just go for the small things. Like try to expand yourself a little bit, um, which has been helpful in an interesting context. In terms of what's missing or what there could have been, a little more of. Well, I'm a sucker for sales, like or startup history, right? right so anytime right, right. he's talking about like we found this or we, like Elon came over and we did our whole x.com thing that's all really interesting but I think it's also really easy to put a lot of stock in uh, what happened in the late 90s and like always translate that here like the late 90s or 2000s that's right. where tech was born and every young person is like oh my god the dot-com bubble I bet that must have been great for our parents but like translating too many of those stories to like I mean the x.com PayPal merger like I was at an old company where we kind of used that as use case to do a merger really really early and it was a big big bust Totally. Like, and it just was not the right move. So certain things hold well, and certain things we've probably translated poorly now that they were incorrect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, what's, what's, have you read, reread books recently? Uh, no, I haven't. There's too much to read or listen to, um, to, to versus going back. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm spending all my time mostly right now. Funny enough, I, I don't read as many books. Um, I read a just enormous amount of articles um, because I, I, I believe they tend to be a little bit more uh, focused and you can kind of cherry pick which an area that you want to dig into, right? So for example, it could be about like comp plans and modeling when you, uh, you know, when you have to have a lead development team that is uh, paid hourly, like how does, how does that, how, what kind of incentive structures can you create? Um, so then I'll just dig into reading about comp plans. I'll just find every article I can about comp plans or, um, versus you know reading a book that's kind of like horizontal about um, you know I don't know whether it's you know the the evolution of selling according to um, what's his name from GE uh, Jack Welch thank you Jack, Jack Welch. Welch Jack Welch I was yeah I was looking at him I can see him very visual I can see him <laughs> I saw him speak I can't like two years ago at Madison Square Garden he's gotten old he totally has yeah yeah he was he, about this tall you yeah know. he's My old hand's very low right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when I when I and I'm and I'm I'm studying to take the Psalm test in December, so that's that's what all my reading. Uh, the Psalmier test. Oh, Psalmier test, very nice. Level one. All right, you gotta get started somewhere. Just gotta start. Yeah. 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 Uh, hardest, 
Level four is the hardest test in the world to pass. Yeah, I interviewed a master som who passed the level four. Shit, it was no way. Probably the coolest single experience of my life. His name is Josh Nadell. He's in New York. He owns a Gotham, uh, Gotham Wine Bar, Gotham something is his company. And we drank a bottle of wine together, had some cheese, did a podcast interview. It was the That's coolest thing awesome. of all time. Once you once you pass level one, Doug, I think you'll be ready for <laughs> for the Josh Nadell. Level stuff. level one's easier. Level two <laughs> gets really really difficult because you have to do blind tasting. And you got to call it, you know, year region varietal. Yeah, just uh, you know, Blah. taste the dirt and, and right, right. You're like, kind of wine. that is a that's a Chardonnay uh, dirt. If yeah, I that's, taste that that's a Sancerre, you know, two thousand sixteen. And I was going to say the same. Speaking about articles, uh, one article that I really liked of yours uh, when I was doing my, my homework here <laughs> was about bubbles. Yes. Uh, you can never give too many bubbles. Totally. Can you tell me more about that? Well, you know, it, it's interesting, and, I, and I've got a kind of a new thesis for salespeople right now that I'm, that I'm working on, which is the little things really matter. Um, and interestingly enough, I think it's little things in terms of actions. And so that uh, the kind of the, the thesis behind that article was really about, um, you know, when there's something meaningful or significant in your life, uh, the people who show up to either support you, congratulate you, or be there for you are kind of the ones who you soon realize the, the people that really matter, right? Um, and not to say that others don't, but it, it's almost like, you know, people always say like your true friends come out when you're in you know, kind of a dire situation. In this case, it wasn't a dire situation, it happened to be a celebration, but it was really, really interesting to see the people who, you know, reached out and, you know, sent a congratulatory note, or in this case, it happened to be a gift because we were on our way to, um, I think we had just gotten engaged, um, uh, which was like, you know, next to George Clooney, I was kind of like, I was holding out, you know, once he, once he, once he went down, I was like, all right, it's fine, screw it, it's my turn then. Um, but yeah, he was supposed to be the final bachelor. Yeah, 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 he's the ultimate no bachelor. I'm like, oh, well, if he's, you know, if he's done, well, then I guess I, I should follow suit. Um, so, um, but it was so fascinating, the people who came out of the woodwork to send us gifts, to send us notes, to send us, uh, um, you know, cards, was super thoughtful. And um, a friend of mine is, uh, his father is, is not doing well. And, and I heard about this kind of like secondhand, thirdhand. Uh, and I sent him a text message and he sent me a, a note back. He's like, you have no idea how incredibly meaningful this little tiny note of thought uh, means. Versus posting it on Facebook where everyone can see it, just like the, the, um, the thoughtful, focused, um, message or note or action really really goes a long way and and interestingly enough I also now tie it I, and I kind of associate too with the language and the words we use um, part of the reason why Sendoso as a company is is exploding is because people want to do things that are thoughtful and meaningful to their cut for their customers or prospects or um, you know someone they might have just had a good meeting with and it before it was really difficult I mean yes Hand, handwritten notes and handwritten cards still matter. Like, I love it when I get those because it's like, oh, you actually went out of your way to do your homework, to do your research, and think specifically about me. It shows real empathy. And um, it's, 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 you know, little acts of empathy, um, little thoughtful uh, um, words, that you may use in conversation, whatever it may be, just show that you have actually put some thought into it and you're not just being a robotic is, is really meaningful, especially in today's world where there's so much noise, like showing that you've actually spent a, just a little bit of time, uh, you know, to, to get to know you. Even just your comment about like, I read that article Bubbles. I mean, shit, I wrote that, I don't know, three, four years ago. Um, that means something. So how do you work around when you work with sales folks or founders and anyone comes out of a good meeting? How, how personal should a relationship with a client or a prospect be? I mean, you, especially in enterprise sales, you might have spent months or years working as a collaborator with the same person on the other side of the table at the other company. How personal do you encourage people to be in those relationships? Is it, hey, remember to send a card on Christmas? Or like Joe Girard, <laughs> the, the car salesman, he's like, yo, you send a card every, once a month to every single client and every prospect because you know they want, they need to know that you're thinking about them, that you care about them. Yeah. Do you text with clients? Like when you build that rapport, what do you think is, yeah. is the right way to go? 
I mean, there, there is no silver bullet because I think it's whatever you're comfortable with, right? If some people, they're not necessarily as comfortable as being vulnerable and opening themselves up and, and building that level of connection with, uh, you know, a professional, uh, um, you know, customer prospect or, or even colleague for that matter. And, and I, I do believe that thoughtful acts of, of um, genuine and sincere uh, behaviors, I think fundamentally actually can shift a relationship. It allows you to actually call in a favor when you know you need that favor, right? Like, oh shit, our quarter's about to end. You and I have been working on this deal for a year. We've actually gotten to know each other quite well. I know that you've got kids, blah, blah, blah. You're like, I know these things about you. And, and, as, a, and as a result of that relationship, I feel like I've earned the right to ask you for a favor, right? Um, if it's somebody that I have no real connection with, I have, um, I, you know, I have, there's, there's no sense of, of, again, that kind of empathy or really thoughtful consideration, I'm less apt to actually do you a favor if you ask. It's also gonna be a hell of a lot harder for you to ask too, right? Because it's kind of like coming out of left field. It's like, I don't really know you, but I'm gonna ask you this favor. Anytime I see that in email, by the way, I'm like, delete, right? You just admitted, A, you don't know me. You haven't actually demonstrated any sense that you've actually tried to get to know me, but now all of a sudden you're asking for a favor. I'm like, nah, it's not gonna work. Show me that um, you've actually put a little bit of legwork in and you've put a little bit of thought. Um, demonstrate that level of empathy and, and you're apt to get way more um, in return than what you, what you met. You've whatever obviously you been in sales for a long time as storyteller or seller or, or consultant Both. or advisor or whatever. <laughs> but you've also been a buyer yep. uh, at Box, for example. How do you think that experience as a buyer makes you better at selling and I also would love a, a story in the context of how maybe somebody you're buying from treated you in this personal way. Well, how about this? People buy from people. People buy from people they like. People buy from people they trust, right? And so demonstrating kind of thoughtful, empathetic, sincere behavior helps to create a level of trust and connection with someone. Um, also, being really honest. You know, like I said before, like I was alluding to before, I think it's the little things that really start to matter and start to separate great sellers from average sellers from terrible sellers. It's the little, the little tiny behaviors. Um, you know, acknowledging the fact that, hey, guess what? We're not great at everything. Here are the things we're really good at. Here are the things we're not so good at. If these things are critical to you, then we're not, maybe we're not the right fit for you. And as a buyer, if someone comes to me with that level of honesty, there's, there's an element of, of, there's immediately an element of trust and credibility that they gain. And now, I'm again, I'm more apt to actually kind of bend over backwards for them. Uh, I'm way more responsive versus if I feel like, it's almost like it's too good to be true. You know what I mean? If, if I'm, as a buyer, and I'm, I, we happen to get into a conversation, which first and foremost would be really difficult because you have to get my attention, right? In order to get my attention, you actually have to pay attention, right? So this is where this whole idea of like really truly understanding the person that you're reaching out to um, and, and kind of who they are and where they came from and how they got in the role and what the, what the role is all about and what are the priorities for that role and how do they align with other priorities in the organization. The more you understand about the buyers that you're trying to sell to, the more you can actually reach out in a, in a sincere way, right? And, and in that, you can make a request like, hey, you know, for example, any, anybody listening to this, uh, if you ever want to get my attention, just talk about the University of Oregon because I went to school there. I'm a huge fan. I go to games. Um, I, I love the school. Go Ducks. Go Ducks, right? Now, I know I'm going to get all these in-mails and be like, oh, Oregon. Um, but <laughs> go it, Ducks, but, $9 but, million. But, yeah, right. Yeah, totally. But then it also has to be relevant, right? It can't just be like, go Ducks, cool. I see you went to Oregon, cool. I want to talk to you about our software solution. I'm like, come on. You know, it's all got to connect. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like as a buyer, um, what I appreciate is are, are the little things. So, so for example, we talk a lot about you know for any deal over ten thousand dollars, anything that I was buying of significance, there's six or seven people behind me that have to be that have to basically approve the deal, right? It's not like I just sign the check. Even if I'm the CEO, I'm likely going to have some checks and balances in place, right? And so, you know, it's what eight to ten touches in order for somebody to actually respond. There are six or seven people involved in the buying group, so that's, you know, what, 40 to 60 touches for one account. So when you're thinking about your cadence of reaching out to people, 
Try and be thoughtful about things that they might be interested in. Don't always have an ask, right? Don't always say like, hey, can I get five minutes of your time? Literally, for example, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm just gonna try to think of something that's relevant. And I'm gonna use Oregon as an example. Okay, so we just beat Montana. That's not really a big deal. We got a big game coming up this weekend. It's against Stanford. It's here in Palo Alto. Um, it could be something of like, you know, good luck this weekend could be the subject. Uh, you know, big game on tap. Pac-12 never gets any, you know, any real love because we're on the West Coast and all the, you know, the voters are on the East Coast. But the reality is, is it, and then it could just be like, hey, you know, I know, you know, you spent your entire career in sales. Thought this article is really interesting on, you know, on language and, and the, you know, the impact of words, certain words that you use. Hope you enjoy. Done. Nothing else. Yeah, I'll give you my version of that. One of the clients we're working with, for one way or another, someone brought up, hey, like, can you guys launch in Norman, Oklahoma? A town none of us have ever been to. Or like, he just knew this. Just to make a point of some rural town, it became a joke between us. Oh, yeah, Norman, Oklahoma. Wouldn't that be a great place to go? And I saw somehow, some way, someone posted, like, Norman, Oklahoma, voted one of the best 50 places to live in the Midwest. No <laughs> so I said this to him, like, by the way, like, I hope you're enjoying Norman. Can't wait to launch there. Totally unrelated to any ass, totally unrelated to anything. What it did, though, it actually, I guess, got him, you know, he laughed, he smiled, he showed it to his colleague who was there, it started a conversation internally, and he came back with, you're right, Adriel, thanks for sending that was hilarious, by the way, I think we're behind on this thing or the other, let's catch up this week. Not at all my intention, but if I had said, let's catch up this week, you would have been like, ah, later. Right, because it would have felt like there was, it, it, was, it would have felt a little insincere, right? Because it's almost like, I don't always, you shouldn't always have to have an ask. Um, because, again, to get somebody to respond, it's timing and relevance, right? Um, and so your relevance, you were relevant with Norman, Oklahoma and the, the association, but the timing might not have been right in order to make the ask of a meeting, right? So, so you don't always have to um, you know, request something in return. I do believe though that if, if, if a buyer is making a request of you, it's okay to make a request back of them. Give me an example, so, I demos I hear a lot. Yeah, so like for example, um, you know, if we have a, if we, uh, this morning, we're going to do this podcast and let's say, and this might be a little loose, but let's just say, you know, 15 minutes before I'm like, Hey, I can't make it. So can we move it to, you know, next week? It's kind of a pain in the ass, right? You were set up, you drove here. Um, you, maybe you're sitting out in the parking lot. You're like, Oh, well, there goes that. That's kind of a waste of time. Um, so now you might, you now have the right to make an ask of me in return because I'm requesting something of you in in uh, in addition to what you've already kind of created, right? So as an example, like if you ever have a customer that's that's uh, late to a demo or they no show on the demo or they're like, hey, you know, you do a demo, everything's great, and they're like, hey, we need to do this again to you know to my boss. It's like, all right, I get it. That's part of the process. However, I now have a request of my own, right? I don't want to keep doing this, you know, 10, 15 times doing multiple demos. How about we sit down and talk about everybody that's going to need to be involved in this buying decision and let's, how do we get everybody on the same page? I think that's really valuable because so often, especially when you're going, we talked about zero to one, one to 10 a little before and I want to hop into that. But especially as you're going along that route in the zero to one process, it feels like a win. Oh, we talked to the director. Oh, and he wants to bring the senior director. Oh, we talked to the senior director and she's bringing in the VP. Oh, the VP's involved and, and she said she's interested maybe maybe in a month. Like yeah. that feels really good, but it's not actually tangible progress that you can I Well, mean, I mean you would argue, you could argue that it's progress. We're getting it's progress. we're getting access to someone else that we didn't know about. Cool, that's interesting. However, it's you know, I would challenge you to, to think about how many times you're saying yes. And what are you getting in return for all the yeses that you're actually saying, right? So yes, you're getting access to one more person, great. But like, look, in, in the business of, in the interest of not wasting everybody's time, let's try and consolidate all of this. Um, and I think here, here's something that I, I spent a lot of time talking to our portfolio companies about and early sellers about is, I think we've assumed, we've, we've taken a blanket assumption that everybody knows how to buy a SaaS application. SaaS is so easy, right? It's an app you download on your phone, you just need access to the internet, and then you can use this amazing application to run your whole business, right? You can integrate with all these other applications. Yeah, the free and, plan, the premium plan, right. the so, so, plan. SaaS is so easy. It's not actually, as a buyer, that easy. 
Um, all we've done is re replaced the distribution vehicle and the UI, if you think about it. And the reality is, is buying a SaaS application is actually, is actually, I would argue, even more difficult today than it was back in the day when I had a physical piece of software that I actually shipped to you, and then you, you know, I, I spent all my time hunting you down for money on professional services and education and everything else um, way back in the day. The reality is, is we need to educate our buyers on how to buy our SaaS application. Just because I might have bought Salesforce doesn't mean I know how to buy your solution. Doesn't mean I know how to buy, you know, whether it's a, a sales acceleration tool, sales engagement tool, marketing automation tool. Doesn't mean I know how to buy all those things. And I don't, it doesn't mean I know how to integrate them all or even use them. And so we are in a, we're, we're in a, we're in a situation where it's, in that, going back to your example of like, okay, so I talked to the director and now they're gonna connect me to the VP and I talk, and then when I talk to the VP, they're gonna connect me with procurement or IT or security, right? My suggestion is you get really, really, really smart about who's in your buying group, right? Buy segment, because you're gonna have a different, slightly different buying group in your SMB segment than your mid-market versus your enterprise. And then know everything you can about them and then teach them what the buying process is typically like. You've done it before. Say, so listen, you know, rather than going back and forth with all these different individuals, my experience has been in the past that we're likely gonna need to get five or six people all together on the same page. And what I also know and understand is everybody has different priorities. And this may not be a priority to them. So you're gonna have to go through a process of educating them on why this should be a priority, why they should make it in the top three. And, and if it does make it in the top three, then my hunch is you're gonna have to, we're gonna have to get procurement involved and IT, because they gotta sign off on it and security, well, they of course need to make sure that it meets their security review. And right, so why don't we preempt this? And in my experience, this is a way in which we can do that. You set up a wonderful question here, which I appreciate. Learning about the buying process, learning about what's important to them, learning about all that. Uh, I heard you speak before about 10Ks. Yes. And how a lot of people don't know how to read 10Ks or how to use 10Ks. Yeah. I don't usually get this technical, but <laughs> since you set it up and I heard you talk about it before, I know 10Ks are a passion of yours. Well, I mean, I, look, 10Ks and 10Qs, just so everybody knows, it's, you know, it, for a publicly traded company, it's the public information about the company and their priorities, right? And, and some of them can be massive. It's kind of like reading an S1, which is why everyone was so excited about Zoom's S1 because it was almost like a coffee table book. It looked so good, but it was also remarkable in five years how profitable they've been and you know how they've been yeah, Zoom built the happy. company. <laughs> right, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Anyway, so a 10K and 10Q, at the end of the day, here's the thing. In this buying group, everyone has different priorities, but at the end of the day, all of those priorities are going to ladder up to one, two, or three priorities that the company has set itself as what we're focused on. And those are the things that you're looking for in the 10K or the 10Q, i.e. like our focus this year is expanding in new markets. Our focus this year is becoming cash flow positive. Our focus this year is, is uh, um, you, you know, look, we've been a steady increase in seven figure deals year over year. This is our year for, you know, at least 27 figure deals. They say, most companies spell it out pretty clearly as far as what they're focusing on for the year or what their priorities are, whatever language they choose to use. Your job is to find out what those are. And then when you're talking to somebody about kind of their role in the organization, a question I would ask is, so one of the things I understand is you guys are hyper-focused on getting cash flow positive. All everybody seems to talk about it. it's what you talked about you know on your earnings call I read it in your 10k how does that impact your job does that mean that you, you don't you have a they have a smaller budget um, that you can't hire the people that you wanted to hire like how does that impact you because my job is to try and make your life easier and I believe I I believe I might be able to do that but I, I want to better understand kind of where your head is. And do big companies, enterprise companies, public companies, proliferate that knowledge, those values down the chain? So if you're if you're the CEO, obviously you had a part in writing that 10K or reading that 10K for us put out. If you're director level or if you're selling into senior management or something like that, 
do they know those values in the same way? Can you reference those 10Ks in the same yeah, way? Yeah, I, I, I would argue they're not values. They're, they're kind of, it's more their priorities, strategy for the sure. year, yeah. priorities for the year. Um, and, and they absolutely know it because it all trickles down, right? Um, you know, typically in the beginning of the year, you write your, you know, your goals for the year, right? Well, guess what? You can't really write those until you know what your bosses are and your bosses doesn't write those until they know what their bosses are. And right, so it's all, it's all interconnected. The CEO sets the strategy and the board set the strategy and the priorities for the year. And that gets trickled down to the executive team. And that executive team then takes, has their marching orders to go trickle that down to their directs, all the way down to individual contributors, all the way down to the people in the mail room and, and the people at the front door. Because that's what we're focusing on, right? So if you read that a company is hyper-focused on becoming cash flow positive, I guarantee you that cost is gonna be a massive issue for everyone in the company, everyone. And in fact, getting a deal across the line might take twice as long because they're so worried about making the right investments. And the reality is everything's about a trade-off, right? So if we invest in your solution over here, we're saying no over here. And it's got, again, we've got to remember that it's got to be connected to this, this whole priority of helping us become cash flow positive, right? If you can start connecting those dots in your conversations, it gets people to take action. At least at a minimum, it gets their attention because you've been paying attention. Now the challenge is when you're selling into a private company, right? And this information isn't public, um, you know, and then, and that's when you have to kind of do your own detec detective work based on, you know, things that a CEO might be publishing or posting on LinkedIn. Um, articles articles that's written, talk they gave, they gave at a conference. Um, and you're gonna have to kind of more loosely connect the dots as to what their priorities might be. But you can also, it's okay to make some hunches. Like, I got a hunch, 10 million right now, my hunch is given the fact that you, you know, you've got some tier one investors, you're doing 10 million in revenue right now, my hunch is your goal next year is 20 million. It's a hunch. How are you gonna get there? If I'm a recruiter, I'm like, I'm willing to bet you're gonna have to double your team in size. I think I can help you do that faster than anybody else, right? So now you gotta kinda do some of your own math if they're, if they're a private company. Um, and do uh, you know just a, a different level of detective work? When when a company's really young, uh, let's put it back in those phases zero to one, one to ten, one, uh, ten to one hundred. When a company's in that zero to one phase, they're just getting started. They're trying to get their first few sales. Maybe they're starting to get into the one to ten. Focus is really, really, really important. And anything that takes time away from something that's going to have a productive conclusion to it is a risk to the survival of the company. Sure. In some ways. And you guys work with really early stage companies, with Series A, Series B companies, sometimes even earlier. You've started a few companies, so you've been in that position. How do you think about the importance of focus, <laughs> uh, a startup's ability to do multiple things at one point, and, and how those priorities get dictated, um, particularly around this? You know, I, I'm thinking in my own context here, you're reading the 10Ks, you're watching the conferences, you're doing the talks, you're sending emails to the whole chain, you're cold emailing, you're prospecting, you're keeping up your relationships. If one or two people are doing that for more than, I don't know, a, 10 companies each, you're run out of time. That's yeah. it, you lost focus, you're not able to do any of that well. Well, in that case, I wouldn't necessarily say you've lost focus. I'd say, look, one of the biggest challenges to all sellers on the planet is time management, right? Prior, prioritizing where you're gonna spend your effort to try and get the most, you know, uh, most reward out of that effort. Um, that's that's difficult. And, and so clearly, if you're an early stage company, um, you know, and you've got some pretty significant targets and goals uh, in mind, you're not, you can't spend that much time reading the 10Ks, 10Qs. So maybe you're gonna pick one company yeah, or two companies for a year that are like marquee companies that you're gonna do that level of homework and research against, and then you're gonna unpack and go, okay, so those are my two elephants, if you will, and then, all right, where are my, my middle companies, and then where are the small little transactional deals that I can, that I can close to keep me afloat, right? Just like if you had your own company, it's like, all right, well, where are we, how are we paying the bills? Where, where's our upside? And then where are the behemoths that are gonna get, that's gonna give us, you know, more financial runway, uh, you know, as, as an example. When working with small companies, um, interestingly enough that you brought up focus, for us as a firm, that is one of our core values. Um, we focus to drive convic conviction. That's what it says in our values. Um, and it is a, one of the things that we've learned 
in fact, even me as an operator and, and only being you know, on the dark side, quote unquote, uh, for the last two and a half years, the, two of the biggest reasons why companies fail is a lack of focus and hiring, bad hiring. Hiring the wrong person at the wrong time for the wrong role, um, super costly, as we all know. There's plenty of data out there to support how much it actually costs, but the distractions of having the wrong, wrong people in place um, for the time and stage of your organization. But focus is another one because it's really easy when you're an early stage company to get distracted by the shiny penny. It's, an, it's a disease I call SOD. It's a shiny object disease, right? Um, and in fact, a, a real life story um, at Box in the early days, we had never done, we hadn't even done you know, a, a six figure deal and Procter & Gamble came knocking on the door and they wanted to pay us a million dollars, roughly. Uh, we're like, what? million dollars we're a tiny little company you've got a million dollar deal on the table um, but their long list of requirements of the product would have forced us to shift a ton of development efforts to support all of the requirements which would have now taken us off of our roadmap for the masses and I give Aaron Levy and the leadership team a ton of credit because they evaluated the deal and their requirements and then they evaluated that against their priorities as a company, um, and they said no. They turned the deal down. Were you involved in that deal? I was not involved in that deal. No, How do you imagine, that's, that's a fascinating story because it's an immense challenge, and now I'm gonna take the role of the salesperson who either brought in that inbound or called <laughs> right. that person. Yeah, you're like, oh my and, gosh, the amount of money I would make on this deal. I don't deal. care how low or high you are on the food chain, but you're calling Aaron Levy's cell phone directly and saying, Aaron, P&G wants to do a million dollar deal. Yep. And I bet Aaron's like, oh my God, that's so cool. Let's check it out. They check it out. Of course. Probably months went by. Yeah. And then somebody tells you no. Yep. yep. How does that salesperson recover? Like, what is that emotional state and what is, what is the learning from that? Because yeah, that, yeah. is, that is a really hard thing to take on as the salesperson was really I, proud I, of that deal. Called called her mom and said, hey, guess what I did? <laughs> right, right. Told the husband or the wife. Well, listen, as a seller, you all know you can't go out and spend your money until the actual check's cleared, right? So, you know, let's just get that clear. Um, you know, we can, it's easy to, to fantasize about what we're going to do with the, you know, the commission we're just about to earn off a deal like that. Um, and we can always ask Dan Cutler, who was the rep that was working that deal. Um, one of the best uh, enterprise sellers I've, I've ever seen. Um, what's interesting is, is look, I think, I think it's really important that everybody recognize that, you know, we all have to wear the company hat. Um, and, you know, as, as an organization in the early stages, we're gonna learn about what's a good customer for us and what's a bad customer. And we're gonna learn about you know, uh, customers we may end up need to, needing to fire because they're just too expensive for us. They're not, it's not a profitable customer. And as a business, you really should evaluate that. Like what, what is a profitable customer for you? What do they look like? And then in addition, you should, you should also evaluate, evaluate like where's the, where's, where is our market segment where there's the least amount of friction? So we can go after that and make that repeatable. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Because that's the state of the business that we're in is we're trying to generate as much, as much in the way of customers so that we can get more feedback on the product and we can continue to build and develop and deliver. Um, so you look, you got a million dollar deal on the table. It's never been done before. Um, you know you're not going to be overly excited about it because you recognize the fact that their requirements are way out of whack. And as much as you would love to do the deal, you also recognize that it, it's, it's gonna be really difficult for us to get over the hump. Um, if it's too difficult, if you feel like it's a total slam dunk and you're just getting no's across the board, well, then maybe there's not a fit anymore for you and that company, you know? But to be honest, you know, the rep even, it was, was really clear about the fact that like, yeah, I would love to do the deal, but this is not a, it's not a good deal for us. We're not gonna be able to repeat it. And oh, by the way, uh, it's going to take away resources, and so therefore we're not going to be able to serve everybody else. This million dollars is going to come might make us right. lose five million. Yeah, totally. Like I'm going to be the selfish asshole and go out, you know, and celebrate this big victory. Well, I'll buy all the other SDRs. Right, right. Yeah. Who cares about everybody else? I don't care about uh, you know our, our inability to actually hit our numbers. And and I think you know in in the early days you're looking for people that actually have the conviction about the company itself and doing what's best for the company and doing what's best for the business. Um, uh, shoot, of course, I'm totally spacing out his name because and I just saw him at Rainmakers. Is it so. Jack Welch again? No, no, it's not. <laughs> Actually, the writer, the creator of Shake Shack, 
Um, uh, Danny Meyer. Yeah, Danny Meyer. Thank yeah. you. I got, I've got you, Doug. Yes, I'm thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there you go. This is, this is a good one-two punch. New Yorker's so, finest. So Danny Meyer, um, I saw him speak at, at uh, Sales Loft's conference, uh, Rainmaker out in Atlanta um, at, earlier this year. And Danny was really interesting in that, you know, I think we've all adopted this, this thesis, which is the customer's always right. And which means you bend over backwards and do whatever it is that they ask in order to make sure that they're happy. And Danny actually has a really interesting perspective and I, and I largely think that Salesloft has adopted this, which is why they have one of the best cultures in any company I've ever seen. And the reality is, is they put an employee, they've created an employee first culture. Take care of your employees first. And if you take care of your employees first, they will take care of your customers. Right, so in going back to the case of you've got a million dollar deal, this customer, you know, it's, we've never seen anything like it before. They've got this crazy list of, of demands. If you take care of your employees, that rep will be able to see and recognize, you know what, this probably isn't a good deal for us to do as a company. I wanna do what's right by our company because they take such good care of me. And so I'm not going to be the selfish asshole, asshole that's gonna try and push this thing through um, regardless of, of, you know, the impact to the to the overall to the business or my colleagues etc and I think that's a really really important lesson um, because if you want to create a maniacally customer centric company it actually starts with what you do with your employees internally Salesforce is a great example of that they talk about how you know they're the customer uh, there's what they're all about customers first and they're the customers customer centric company or whatever it may be but the reality is is you know if you Part of the reason why people stay at Salesforce for so long is because they take really good care of you. Things like if, you know, I, I know of people who have had medical emergencies that Mark personally has picked up the phone, called the hospital, the Benioff Hospital, and said, I want the best brain surgeon you've got to take care of one of my employees. Like, I was in India at the time of the Mumbai, Mumbai bombings, and you know, we got text messages like, get out on the next plane, doesn't matter, no cost, leave. Right, it's like those little things that you do for your employees that creates a story, right? That everybody starts to share and talk about. That becomes a large part of your culture, and that inspires people to want to do right by you as an organization. And that is gets infused into the customers and prospects that you work and work with and talk to. It's it's pretty remarkable if you think about it. Yeah, on the note of not overselling or, or selling something with too many specifications. Uh, one of my favorite books on the topic is Four Steps of the Epiphany uh, by Steve Blank, uh, which I highly recommend. And in that, he's got a line that says, the job of the early stage salesperson is just to sell the product that has already been built. Mm -hmm. Because if you sell too far ahead, or yep. you know, you could build towards what the customer wants. Yeah. But right now, it's not to overly adapt it, or it's just to find that perfect customer who's gonna buy the product uh, that your team has built. In terms of smart, super in, smart. In terms of taking care of employees, I think this is where, where I want to close up here. Um, that's a beautiful story about what Benioff does and what other customer-centric companies do, and then how that makes you feel about that company. Then you probably proliferate that onwards uh, to all of the clients you speak with. You joined Box after a bit of success at other tech companies, uh, specifically because, if I understand it right, you you were really impressed by Aaron. You're really yep. impressed by the CEO. Um, There's something about the way he spoke or the way he led the company that made you really excited to go eventually become chief storyteller there. How do you think, now that you work with CEOs and other heads of sales, what do you think are some ways that CEOs treat head of sales or measure them or speak with them or delegate to them that work really, really well? And what are some mistakes that you see CEOs make in regards to their sales team or sales leads? Uh, it's interesting. First thing, yes, love Aaron Levy. I've been a fan ever since the first day I met him. Um, he's brilliant, crazy, super passionate, um, and, and, and all of those things are very motivating. And, and you want to work really hard. You want to walk through walls for him. Um, that it, it is a characteristic that not all CEOs have. Some can be very cerebral. Some can be very data-oriented. Some can be very soft. Some, you know, everyone kind of has their, their a, a different, their slightly different style. The things that I've seen work is when CEOs never stop caring, and when CEOs never stop learning. Right. So. Um, even if you're a, even if you've been a CEO two, three different times, 
so long as you so long as you have the mo that you want to continuously grow and learn um, as a as a human as a leader and that you don't know everything and you're going to find yourself in situations you don't always know the answer to it makes you more approachable um, it's a matter of like showing some level of vulnerability and 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 kind of humanness because i will tell you this the ceo job is the loneliest job on the planet like who do you talk to when things are going sideways not like you can talk to your you know people that work for you because they expect you to lead and not show cracks in the dam right and so you need to find other CEOs that you can actually, you know, kind of share your war stories with and get feedback on. Um, but that also doesn't mean that you can't be human and, and acknowledge the fact that, A, we're going to make mistakes. You know, we're going to have, you know, a ton of, a ton of opportunity to celebrate. We're also going to have some very stressful times. We're going to have to work extra hard. Um, you know, but at the end, the end goal is we're all trying to do this. What kind of, what's, what's our purpose? It's creating that sense of purpose. And I think when CEOs are really clear about the sense of purpose and they've got a mission and they're transparent about what's happening in the organization and why, um, they can be wildly successful. Also, when they demonstrate a level of empathy and caring that, that gets people, that, that helps people recognize that they're supported, that works. What doesn't work is when CEOs micromanage, they feel like they've got the answers to everything. Um, they want to step in and kind of take over and rather than letting their leaders lead they want to actually be the kind of the final voice um you know it's it's similar to helicopter parenting right um and also you know it's interesting i i, I and of course i'm totally blanking on all these names and books and etc but there's that, but there's a book that was written um that was really interesting when it the thesis of the book was like, look, when you assign a project to somebody, don't undermine them and cancel it before it's over. Because if you assign me a project, Aaron assigns me a project, I'm in. Like, I'm like, woohoo, I got this great project. I can, I understand the impact that it's going to have. And then in the middle of the project, it's like, no, we're canceling that. Well, I had a sense of purpose and you just ripped that right out from underneath me. Right? And especially if you turn around and you give it to somebody else, without any context of what I was doing right or wrong or why we're not going forward with this, if you don't reorient my sense of purpose, you've just, I've lost all my steam in the organization. And um, we have to be really careful about doing that. As managers, we can do that. You know, you, like one of the things that Aaron is notorious for uh, um, is he, he'll have a great idea and whoever's in the room around him that he sees, he's like, hey, hey, Go, yeah, go work on this. Go do this. Even though it's not your job and you know it actually should belong to somebody else, it's just kind of like that immediate line of sight, I want, I want to get this done because I, I believe in this and I think it could work. Um, that actually can create a ton of uh, tension because I'm not necessarily going to say no. You know, no, that's actually not my job. That actually is John's job over here. Yeah, I'm an accountant. Right, <laughs> right. I'm like, um, and so I'm going to kind of go, and then and then I start to work on it. Maybe I go meet with John. I'm like, hey, Aaron asked me to do this. And now all of a sudden, John's like, why would he ask you to do that? That's that's kind of in my swim lane. Like, that's not yours. But all of a sudden, he looked at me, and so I feel some sense of responsibility for it. And so it creates total, it creates a ton of tension in the organization. So... Um, just be really clear about what you're working on and why and what's the purpose and everybody needs to feel like that they belong and they have that sense of purpose. Um, and uh, you know, early stage CEOs, just be super careful about who you hire and be careful about micromanaging and always go into this with, always go into your every single day with, an with the, I, the mentality of like, I wanna go learn something new um, and if I don't know it, I'm going to go learn about it. That's one of the things that I really appreciated about Aaron and even um, a couple of our CEOs in our existing portfolio companies. If they don't know about something, they want feedback, they want advice, they want information, but then they'll go study up on it. And they'll come back the next day or the next week and they're like, so I was doing some reading and um, I think we might want to go in this direction. What do you think? It's like, holy smokes, how did that come about? Where'd that come from? Um, and you realize you're like, wow, you are, you're, you're hungry for this. And, and again, when I see you doing that kind of work, it's like, I want to do that kind of work too. It's, it's, um, circular. Yeah. It's, it's just a trickle down effects. It's a ripple effects. Uh, well, I think that's an awesome place to pause for a moment, finish up on a quick fire round. Yeah. 
Let's do it. The first question of which I know the answer. And I'm so excited because what is your favorite uh, sales book? Can we say Never Split the Difference? We can say Never Split the Difference. <laughs> it is one of my favorite sales books without question. Yeah, it's awesome. I but, just, I'm such a fan of Chris Voss's and the way, the way he talks. Although I will say um, Todd Capone, uh, uh, The Transparency Sale, that just recently came out. And I love that because it really is about being transparent and honest and empathetic. Um, and and uh, Todd's just a, a great leader. So I'm a big fan of that book as well. Cool. Todd Capone? Todd Capone. All right. Um, never split the difference. We can geek out a little later. Love Chris Voss. Uh, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? Uh, the sale that I'm most proud of landing is getting this job here at Emergence. I had to sell myself. We built something that had never existed before, really, this idea of this growth partner. I mean, we have a lot of platform roles um, uh, in, in other venture firms, but um, this one was something new and unique, and it's awesome and you know, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I had to sell myself pretty damn hard. All right. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met him, but you've talked about him. What is something you've learned from Ray Lane? Haha, <laughs> Ray Lane. Um, who is he? <laughs> so Ray Lane used to be the president of Oracle. Um, he is, he's now in venture capital as well. Ray reminds me very much of Jim Steele. They have a, a polish and a professionalism and a charisma about them that they can hold an audience of any executive of any company in the world, fortune one to 1000, doesn't matter. Um, they know how to have they, they're so articulate at having business conversations. Not product conversations, not technology conversations, business conversations. They can read a 10K and a 10Q in about mm, 90 seconds to know exactly what's going on in the organization and then be able to have a conversation about how they can help them meet those priorities or align with their priorities. Um, just incredibly, incredibly professional executives. And I tell you, um, you know, in the, in the day of, as I'm sitting here in my jeans and no socks and, you know, kind of uh, short sleeve button down, um, there is a time and a place to throw on a suit, maybe not a tie, but like polish yourself, look professional, because I learned in the early days, you know, um, what is it? Look good, feel good, do good, right? The, the, the better you look, the better you feel, the better you feel, the better you do. It's almost like when you're on the phone and you're smiling, people can feel that. All right. Uh, well, final question for you, Doug. Uh, any final words of wisdom or guidance that you would give to yourself if you were starting off in sales today? What guidance would I give to myself if I was starting off in sales today? Um, know the sales equation, inside and out. And I'm gonna leave it at that. If you don't know what that is, do your homework. I like it. Doug, this has been a ton of fun. It's been a blast. Thank, Thank you very you. much. There you have it, Doug Landis, ladies and gentlemen. The big sale isn't always the right sale. Handwritten notes can go a long way, and 10Ks, well, they can be a lot more fun than they sound. If you want to learn more about Doug or about Emergence Capital, check out mcap.com, that's E-M-C-A-P.com, or find Doug on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Doug Landis. If you like the podcast today, leave us a review. And if you didn't, tweet me at alubarski2 and we'll make it all better. Thanks and happy selling. <laughs>